Arthur Kurzweil, who has, Rabbi Arthur Kurzweil, who has been here to VBM before, who is a writer, publisher, editor, and magician. He's the author of several books, including On the Road with Rabbi Steinzoltz, Pebbles of Wisdom from Rabbi Adin Steinzoltz, The Torah for Dummies, Kabbalah for Dummies, and From Generation to Generation, How to Trace Your Jewish Family History. Um, today's event, Rabbi Kurzweil will explore 15 of the many profound and fundamental ideas of Jewish theology to be found in the contemporary classic, The 13 Petaled Rose, written by Rabbi Adin Steinzoltz. Steinzoltz. Thank you, Rabbi Kurzweil, for being here. Thank you for having me. You ready to go? Ready when you are. Okay. Uh, hello, everybody. I, uh, by way of introduction, I want to say that uh, it was in the late, late 1970s that I read an article, an essay that Rabbi Steinzeltz had written and was published in a magazine here in the United States. <clears throat> and I felt like he had written this, this essay directly to me. So I, I got, went to my typewriter, you remember typewriters, and I, I wrote a, a letter to him uh, uh, saying lots of things, including the fact that if he, I said, if he's ever in New York, I would love to meet him. Well, I never got an answer, but one day about a year later, I got a phone call from a woman who said um, that Rabbi Steinzels is gonna be in New York next week. How's Wednesday at 10? Well, Wednesday at 10 was just fine for me. And from the time that I got that phone call until Wednesday at 10, I sat down to think of every big question in my life. I figured if this man is who they say he is, then I'm gonna go for broke. I'm gonna ask the, the biggest questions in my life. And I, I came up with 11 questions. And when, when I got to see him, um, we got through nine out of the 11 questions. We spent about three, three and a half hours with each other. So I certainly got my money's worth. And from that point on, I just looked for more and more opportunities to spend time with Rabbi Steinzoltz. <clears throat> if you don't know, uh, Rabbi Steinzoltz has done something. He passed away about a year ago, a little less than a year ago. Um, but he did something in his life that hasn't been done for a thousand years, uh, which is to write a comprehensive commentary on the entire Talmud. Rashi did it about a thousand years ago, and Rabbi Steinzoltz did it in our generation. Uh, and this is only one of many of his, of his extraordinary accomplishments. Uh, but I had a great idea one day. I, I, I knew that Rabbi Santos came to the United States every once in a while. So I called the office in Manhattan that, that uh, organizes his trips to the United States. And I said to the woman who answered the phone, I, I would like to work for Rabbi Steinzeltz. Do you have a job for me? I said, I'm not looking for money. I'm just looking for an opportunity to help Rabbi Steinzeltz in his mission. Rabbi Steinzeltz's uh, motto is let my people know. And uh, I, uh, I thought that that was just what <clears throat> I want to get involved with, particularly with the rabbi. So the woman on the other end of the phone said to me, well, that's a very nice offer. What can you do? And I said, well, do anything you want. Just give me a job and, and I'll do it. The woman said, you know, that's very nice. But if you give me a sense of some of your skills, maybe I can find a place for you. And uh, I, I said, uh, I don't care. Give me the junkiest job in the world. I, I don't care what you give me as long as I help Rabbi Steinzeltz. If you want, I'll pick him up at the airport at five o'clock in the morning. And the woman said to me, you will? And from that point until uh, last year, a couple of years ago, um, I've been picking Rabbi Steinzeltz up at uh, John F. Kennedy Airport, fl flight number one coming from, from Israel to New York. <clears throat> and of course, I've spent a tremendous amount of time with him, mainly due to the traffic situation in New York City. 
I always, I loved it when there was uh, rush hour traffic and Rabbi Sandals was sitting next to me. So we spent a lot of time together over the years. And just to give you a sense of the rabbi, one day uh, I got a phone call from a man who is the head of a yeshiva on Long Island. And the man said to me, I understand that you're bringing Rabbi Steinsaltz to uh, to um, certain synagogue. Um, he was the head of a yeshiva. And I said, yes, Rabbi Steinsaltz is going to be giving a lecture at that synagogue tomorrow. He said, so the, the Rosh Yeshiva, the head of the yeshiva said to me, um, well, maybe you could bring him to the school first. It would be extraordinary if the students who study with his Talmud could meet him. And I said to the man, you know, it's very, very good idea, but we have such a tight schedule. I don't think we have the time. Well, he pleaded with me. He said, you, you realize that the students, they, they learn from the rabbi's books. It wouldn't it be amazing if they could actually spend some time with him. And I said, believe me, I know that it would be amazing, but I just don't have the time. The head of the yeshiva then said to me, listen, if I have the students in the auditorium tomorrow afternoon at two o'clock in the afternoon, all you have to do is pull up in front of our school, come in for, for two minutes, let, let Rabbi Seinzels just greet, greet the students. It'd be a special moment for, for, for them. And I said to the head of the yeshiva, okay, I know where your school is. I grew up not far from, from there. So I'm able to, to, to get there pretty quickly. If you can promise me that the students will be in the auditorium, uh, as you said, at two o'clock tomorrow afternoon, I'll swing by, we'll stop in front of the synagogue and we'll go in and that's just what happened. Uh, two o'clock came the next day, I pulled up in front of the synagogue and uh, we, we walked into the auditorium and there were all the students sitting there. Robert Sentels gets up and he says, students, I don't know that much about that many things, but I do know something about Torah study. So I'd like to give you some advice regarding your Torah study. My advice to you is this, make the lives of your teachers as miserable as you possibly can. Make your students' lives, your teachers' lives miserable. Try to trick them, trick them with questions they might not be able to answer. Try to find contradictions that, they, that they're speaking in the classroom. Make the lives of your teachers as miserable as you possibly can. And off he walked. Well, as he's walking off the stage, <clears throat> the head of the yeshiva um, goes to the podium and says, uh, uh, students, I, I, on behalf of the, our school, I'd like to thank Rabbi Seinzels for, for, for fitting us into his tight schedule. But students, I, I, I want to ask you, please don't take Rabbi Seinzels too literally. At which point Rabbi Seinzels, who is walking off the stage, turns around, walks back to the podium, grabs the microphone and says, students, I have been misquoted by journalists all of my career. I don't want to be misquoted here. I'm telling you, make the lives of your teachers as miserable as you possibly can. And then, then off he went. That, that's, that's the kind of guy he was. He was a, a good sense of humor, um, but he wasn't joking when he, when he told us that, 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 those few words of advice. So just one more thing, and we'll get into the 13 Petal Rose. And that is several years back, maybe, oh, maybe it was 25 years ago, uh, Rabbi Sanchez was invited to give the keynote talk of the annual meeting of the uh, New York Board of Rabbis. Now, the New York Board of Rabbis is one of these miracle organizations where reform, conservative, reconstructionist, orthodox rabbis are all in the same room together and everybody gets out alive. So, so it was a nice, nice situation. And Rabbi Santos, again, was invited to give the keynote address. He gets up to the podium, the place is mobbed. There was not even standing room only. 
the people were falling out of the doors. Um, everybody knew that Rabbi Sandals was the special man who he is, and everybody wanted to hear what he had to say. So the rabbi gets up in front of the group of rabbis, this large group of rabbis, and says, he begins by saying, Kabbalah is the official theology of the Jewish people. He said, let me repeat that. Kabbalah is the official theology of the Jewish people. He then said to the rabbis, if you're not learning it, if you're not teaching it, then one could say fairly that you're not doing your job. Kabbalah is the official theology of the Jewish people. And then he proceeded for the next hour and a half to, to, to defend his position and to illustrate to the rabbis why, in fact, that perception of the Rabbi Sandals is, is true. Kabbalah is the official theology of the Jewish people, and the 13 petal rose is a book of Kabbalah. As the rabbi himself describes, um, 13 petal rose is not a book about Kabbalah. 13 petal rose, he says, is a book of Kabbalah. And when I, I've read the book countless times, I've also had uh, the opportunity to sit next to him in rush hour traffic, as I mentioned. So I've had lots of opportunities to ask him questions and to get clarifications from him. So I feel somewhat qualified to talk about 15 different ideas that I feel that are important uh, in the 13 pillar rows. So let's start with number one. <clears throat> number one, we, we already know all of this. We already know all of what, what he's teaching. The problem is we've forgotten it. You, you may know the story of, in, the, in the Talmud, in the tractate uh, Nida, where, where um, they describe what's happening to the fetus before it's born. And before the fetus is born, it's sitting with God and it's, it's studying Torah. And then as the fetus get, is being birthed, an angel comes and slaps it on the mouth, at which point the angel... The, the, the fetus, the baby, forgets all of what he learned or she, or she learned. So that life is not a matter of learning more and more and more, but rather remembering what it is we already know. In fact, in the introduction to the 13 Pillar Rose, Rabbi Sangel says this. This little book is a book for the soul. It begins quite deliberately and perhaps to the dismay of some readers with a view of another reality. It does not proceed from this world or from the familiar ways of man in our society. Instead, it seeks to go from the genuine center of all being to the world and to human life. There's no attempt here to speak about Judaism, to prove its worth or to justify it. it rather to let the message communicate itself. And if the person permits his soul to listen, the soul will soon learn that all it needs to do is remember because in some dim and enigmatic way, it already knows all this. So that, that's, that's uh, uh, point number one. We already know all of this, but, but for one reason or another, we've been distracted by all kinds of other value systems and cultures and information that uh, obfuscates rather than clarifies. We already know all of this. Number two, some people believe that we're just a body. You're born, you live, you die. We're just a body. On the other hand, there are other people who believe that we're not just a body, we're a body that has a soul. We're not just a body, we're a body that has a soul. Now, in Jewish tradition, we don't believe either of those two sentences, statements. We don't believe that we're just a body, and we don't have the notion that we're a body that has a soul. In our tradition, we know that we're a, body, we're, we're a soul that has a body. The soul existed before this particular body, the soul picks up this body, 
for 70, 80 years, whatever it is, and the soul drops the body and the, and the soul goes on with its work. So we're not a, bo a, a body that has a soul, we're a soul that has a body. Makes a big, big difference in lots of questions in life. Number three, it's important, Rabbi Seinfeld says, to acknowledge that all of the stuff in this book, or much of this stuff in this book, I should say, is um, beyond our understanding. Nevertheless, he writes a whole book, and uh, he's saying that, that the, the, the book is beyond our, under, the, the topics in the book are beyond our understanding, that, that he writes a chapter in the book called Torah. And the first thing he says about the Torah is that it's impossible to define Torah. He writes a chapter in the book called The Soul. And the first thing he says in the chapter on the soul is that it's impossible to know, to understand the soul. And one after the next, after the next chapter, Rabbi Seinzels is telling us that, that this stuff is, is not, not understandable. The secret of it is, though, that in acknowledging that it's impossible to understand, that's a key to beginning to understand it. Paradoxically, what we have to admit to the fact that this stuff is beyond our comprehension, and that becomes a doorway through which we begin to understand what it is he's writing. Number four, we don't believe in Jewish tradition that God created the world. We have no such belief that God created the world. Rather, our belief is that God creates the world, that God is constantly creating the world. Some, as one, one sage said, it's as if God were to turn his attention somewhere else for a moment and the whole thing would disappear. God is sustaining the world constantly. Everything that happens, happens because God uh, wants it to happen. Uh, uh, God doesn't, didn't create the world. God, God creates the world. A very different view, by the way, than the view that you learned from Rabbi Harold Kushner in his book, When, when Bad Things Happen to, to Good People. Rabbi Kushner's idea is that he says, I can't believe that God is all-powerful and all-knowing. Because if God was all-knowing and all-powerful, he wouldn't let bad things happen to good people. Therefore, Hal Krishna says, I believe that God is all-knowing, but not all-powerful. And this is the, uh, the, the, the philosophy that Harold Krishner spins out in that book and, and teaches. It's, 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 I hate to say it, but it's the classic statement of heresy, that, that, that God is not all-powerful. But God is, did not create the world. God creates the world, constantly, constantly um, making the world exist and, and, and uh, sustaining the world. Related to that idea is, uh, is what I'll call number five, which is that God is not the CEO of the universe. It's a false analogy that we often make, that God is the CEO of the, like the CEO of the, uh, of the of the universe, but but it's it's not it's not the way we conceive of God, the inconceivable. Instead, let's let me give an example. Do you think that the president of General Motors knows who the secretary is to the assistant director, the assistant manager of the local General Motors car dealership? Clearly not. That that head of the of of General Motors doesn't know who these. Uh, the uh, assistant manager's secretary is and never looks into it because he's got better, better, more important things to do. But when we 
conceive of God as infinite, infinite to the infinite degree, infinite beyond anything that we can define on any level whatsoever, then we see that God is not the CEO of the universe. God is just as close, just as close to the small as he is to the big, just as, just as close to uh, what we think is important to what we don't think is important. God is not the CEO of the universe. We, we conceive of, of God in a, uh, in, in a, in a way that, that deals with mathematics and in particular infinity. A friend of mine uh, not long ago um, asked Rabbi Seinzels, what should the curriculum be for, for, for children who are five and six year, six year old? The person who asked the question was a teacher of, of Jewish students who are five and six years old and, and said to Rabbi Seinzels, what, what should we be teaching? And Rabbi Seinzels responded by saying to the person, teach them about infinity. Teach the children about infinity. Uh, from, from experience, I can tell you that, that children uh, can, can talk about infinity. They can have an easier time talking about infinity than often than, than uh, adult, adults do. Uh, so, so God is not the CEO of the universe. God is infinite and touches every, everything and everybody in, in the same way. Rabbi Santos was a mathematician. He taught mathematics for many years. And um, he, one day he told me about a, a theorem in geometry that explains faith in God. The name of the theorem is Desarge's theorem with a D, Desarge's theorem. Now it's not a theorem in plain geometry that we learn in high school. It's actually a theorem in geometry that has to do with circles and angles and cones and movement. It happens to be called Desarge's theorem. If you were to look up Desarge's theorem in an encyclopedia, within a few minutes, if you carefully look at it, you'll see that it's easy to understand. It's not a difficult theorem at all. It's easy to understand the Sarge's theorem. The problem with the Sarge's theorem is that you can't prove it. There's no way to prove the theorem until you conceive of a point in the infinite. Once you conceive of the point in the infinite, then it becomes very easy to prove that theorem. And Rabbi Sanzos once said to me, that's what faith is. We conceive of the infinite. We invite the infinite into our lives and suddenly things change. We invite the infinite into our lives and, and things that didn't make sense be, begin to make sense. This is the Sarge's theorem. So I'll go, go to, um, to number seven, which is the, the, probably the fiercest teaching in the book. To God, everything is the same proportion. Let me read a, a little passage from the book. Rabbi Seinfeld writes in the second chapter of the book, he says, precisely because the divine is apprehended as an infinite, not a finite force, everything in the cosmos, whether small or large, is only a small part of the pattern. So there's no difference in weight or gravity between any one part and another. The movement of a man's finger is as important or unimportant as the most terrible catastrophe for as against the infinite, both are of the same dimension. So, so um, to God, everything is of the same proportion. A, a, a tiny insect has just as much relationship to God as, as, as you or I do. So I'll go to number seven, number eight on my list. 
Rabbi Seinfeld talks about, in, in the book, talks about a descent for the sake of ascension. That every descent is for the sake of ascension. In other words, the sages say that in, in Jewish tradition, there's no such thing as down. Because every down is just a preparation for the next up. It's like if you go to an amusement park and you see a, a um, roller coaster, you know that in order for that roller coaster to get up high, first it has to come down very fast in the down direction, and then, and then it goes up. Every, every, every descent is for the sake of ascension. So that in, in our lives when we fall, in our lives when we struggle and we fall, we shouldn't despair because it's a descent for the sake of ascension. Every, every, we, we have no, no, in Jewish tradition, there's no such thing as down. Uh, put it a different way, Rabbi Nachman of Bratzlav once said, once taught that, um, that the, the, what, what is the, 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 the most serious sin? What is the most serious sin? And the answer that he gave was the most serious sin is depression. Not, not clinical depression, but for somebody to be, to be depressed. That, that that depression, that descent, is also for the sake of ascension. Every descent is for the sake of ascension. In the Hasidic world, there's even a nigun that is sung with the words of the nigun. Uh, it's not just a tune, there's also words to it. And they say over and over again, a descent for the sake of ascension. A descent for the sake of ascension. So number nine. Number nine, uh, is to me one of the most important of the of my list of 15 or 16 or 17 uh, ideas that, that I've gleaned from this book. And it may, the, the idea distinguishes us for, perhaps from, from our Christian neighbors. Our Christian neighbors have, have a hierarchy of values where love is at the top of the list. In Jewish tradition, we don't have such a list. There's no hierarchy of values. It isn't the way we look at things. Instead, we look at everything, every potentiality of the heart, every potential that we have as being on the same level, not one on top of the other, more important, less important, less important, but all of these potentials of the heart are on the same level and are right and wrong, not by what they are, but how they're used. Or as I like to say, timing and dosage. Honesty, for example, honesty is not good, depends on the situation. I wouldn't go into the hospital room and say, Grandma, you look worse than you did yesterday. Honesty sometimes is not good. In every moment of, of our lives, we are on, have the charge of trying to decide what timing and what dosage for each of our emotions, for each of our reactions. And we don't have any preconceived notion about one being higher than the other. On, love is not, is not the highest. Sometimes love is absolutely inappropriate for the situation. Hate is not the lowest. Sometimes hate is exactly what the situation calls for. So that, that, that the potential of the heart is on one level, the same level, and is considered good or bad, not by what it is intrinsically, but rather how you use it and when you use it. I call it again, timing and dosage. So let me go to number 10 in my list. Rabbi Seinfeld teaches in this book, 13 Pillar Rose, that despair, despair is an essential part of tshuva. In other words, don't, if you're feeling despair, don't despair, because despair is what you need in order to turn. 
in order to repent, in order to change your way. That despair is, is just, just the thing that creates the energy which allows you to leap over your past and to, cha to change it, the, the direction of your life. So the, despair is not negative. Despair can be just the thing that the situation calls for. Uh, um, and uh, it's an ascent, as Robert Sanchez expresses, it's an essential part of tshuva. My next point, uh, number 11, is Robert Sanchez teaches that when you ask yourself the question, what am I doing? Where am I? Who am I? Many of us from time to time ask this question. What am I doing? Where am I? Where am I going? Who am I? Rabbi Sandals teaches that, that when you ask yourself that question, that really isn't you asking the question. It's really God asking you the question. Now, you may not recognize it, but when you ask yourself, who am I? Where am I? What am I doing? Where am I going? This is actually, in reality, God's voice that is whispering to each of us to, to, to face those questions. Where am I? Who am I? Where am I? Where am I going? This is the voice of God. Next one, number 12. It's a very succinct principle that Rabbi Sanzel writes in his book. If you think you've arrived, you're lost. If you think you've arrived, you're lost. But in this, in this going after God, in this going to God day after day, year after year, lifetime after lifetime, uh, if you think you've arrived, you're lost. The question is asked, if we're working so hard to try to get closer to God, and if God is infinite as ever, that we can never arrive, because if we arrive, we're lost, then how do you know you're making progress? How do you know you're making any progress? And the rabbi responds by saying, what you do is every once in a while you pause and you look back and see how far you've come. But then you turn around again and keep going forward Understanding that if you think you've arrived, you're, you're lost. Number 13. Rabbi Sanchez teaches that when you're defining who you are, you can only define yourself as who you are in relationship to God. You have a relationship with your spouse, perhaps, a relationship with your friends, a relationship with your employees or employers, your relationship with your children. But Rabbi Sanjal teaches that these are only secondary relationships. All of these relationships are only secondary relationships. There's only one primary relationship, and that's our relationship to God. It's the only way that we can really define ourselves is in relationship to the, to the infinite, in our relationship to the absolute. Uh, we, we cannot define ourselves in relationship to all of our secondary, uh, secondary re relationships. One of, one of the... Uh, text that supports this is a, a collection of midrashim called the, the, the midrash from, from uh, Rabbi Elijah. And not Elijah the prophet, but from another person whose name was Elijah. And there was a collection of his midrashim. And in this book, the Rabbi Elijah says, there are four reasons that people, why people get married. Three of them are not good and one of them is good. What are the three bad reasons to get married? One is money. Don't get married for money. Number two, sex. Don't get married for sex. Could be important, but don't get married because of it. And number three, social status. Don't get married, don't, don't get married to, to increase or 
or, or better your social status. These are the th three popular reasons people get married that, that are not uh, um, really at the core of what it is to, to be married. We, the Rabbi Eliyahu says that the only reason you get married is to find a partner who can help you with your primary relationship, which is your relationship to God. Your spouse has to know and has to have an agreement with you that we're not, that each of us is not our primary relationship. Each of us helps each other with our primary relationship, which is our relationship to God. It's only in relationship to God can you really define yourself and know who it is that you are. The Rosentos teaches that there's a, there's a, <clears throat> the sin of knowing. You know, we have this nice story in the Torah about Adam and Eve and, uh, and uh, that, that they ate from the tree of knowledge. And it's a, very, it's a puzzle. What, what, why, what's wrong with knowledge? I thought we Jews were the, were the knowledge people, the, the, you know, the, the university people. How is it, how is it that, that, that God sets it up that there's a, a tree, a, a tree of knowledge that you're not supposed to eat? And Rabbi Sanjel interprets that little story from the Torah as saying that sometimes you know so much about so many things that rather than clarify the world, it obfuscates the world. The sin of knowing, the sin of knowing more than you need to know. Sin of, uh, as the rabbi puts it, uh, acquiring heaps and heaps of unrelated facts. So, sometimes when my children were uh, were young and were going to going to school, I would I would apologize to them for for sending them to school, because I saw that every day they were just being piled into their heads heaps and heaps of unrelated facts, which don't, which don't clarify things, which have, actually um, blur things, obfuscate things. The sin of knowing is knowing more than you need to know. Next idea is that God creates everything, even evil. There's nothing that exists in the universe that God didn't create. And again, inclu including evil. God creates everything. God sustains everything. Finally, I would say that one of the profound ideas in the 13 Pellet Rose is the idea of what is the way, the question, what is the way of holiness? What, what do we as Jews do in our, in our path of, hopefully in our path of, of a holy life? And Rabbi Seinzel suggests that, for example, in the base Midrash, what do you do? You study, mostly you're studying Talmud. And Talmud is filled with questions, thousands of questions. And you're asking questions and you're doubting and you're probing and you're questioning and you're doubting and you're probing. And then at a certain point, the Gabbai, the, the, the organizer in the, in the base Midrash, makes a noise and says, okay, everybody, it's time to daven, it's time to pray. And we put down our Talmud and we pick up our prayer book. And our prayer book is one solid book of faith. Faith, 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 faith. Until you put down the prayer book, and you go back to 63 volumes of doubt. The Talmud is 63 volumes of doubt, where we ask and we probe and we question, and we question and we probe and we ask and we doubt, until at a certain point, you hear somebody go like this, 
and we know that it's time no longer to study the Talmud. It's time to pick up our one, one volume of faith, our prayer book, which is faith, 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 faith. And then when you finish your praying, you go back to your doubt. And when you finish your doubt, you go back to your faith. Rabbi Seinfeld says, to get stuck in either place is a grievous error, a grievous error. But going back and forth between the two, that's the Jewish way of holiness. Not to be afraid of doubt, not to be afraid of questions. You know, they say that Eskimos have lots of words for snow that most of us don't have. Well, in Jewish life, we have more questions than, than probably any people in the world. Did, did you ever ask somebody the question, where did you get that information? It's a common question, where did you get that information? Well, there's an Aramaic expression in the Talmud, which reads, where did you get that information? Did you ever say to a person, where the hell did you get that information? Slightly different from the first question. Where the hell did you get that information? Well, there's an Aramaic expression in the Talmud. Where the hell did you get that information? Did you ever want to say to somebody, what are you a moron? Where the hell did you get that information? Well, there's an Aramaic expression in the Talmud, which reads, what are you a moron? Where the hell did you get that information? There are countless forms of questions that fill the, fill the, the 63 volumes of the Talmud until again, at one point, you put the uh, Talmud aside and you pick up that one volume of faith, solid, solid faith, and you express your faith until once again, you put it aside and you go back to your questions and your doubts and your doubts and your, and your questions. So I, I have had the opportunity over the last almost 40 years to, um, to spend time with Rabbi Steinzels. And there was one evening when uh, we were in Manhattan and uh, Rabbi Sanders wanted to have some dinner. So I took him to dinner at a restaurant on, on uh, 34th Street in Park Avenue called Mendy's. It's a meat restaurant. And we went to the restaurant for dinner. Usually when Rabbi Sanders goes to a restaurant, he usually goes to the back of the room and he has his back, back of his body facing the restaurant so that nobody sees him. Because to many people, he's a, he's a superstar. And he doesn't get a chance to eat when, when, when people recognize him and disturb him. But, but, so he went to the back of the restaurant and his back was to everybody. But wouldn't you know it that a moment or two later, a young man comes over and says, Rabbi Steinsaltz? And Rabbi Steinsaltz said, yes, uh, do I know you? And uh, the young man who, who interrupted us said, no, you don't, but perhaps you knew my grandfather. Uh, my grandfather was Rabbi so-and-so and he was a rabbi in Jerusalem. Rabbi Sandel said to him, you were that rabbi's grandson? Uh, he was a great posek. In other words, he was a great answer, answer of, 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 of Jewish questions. So the young man said, yes, I knew that about my grandfather. And then Rabbi Sandel said to him, did you ever hear the story about your grandfather and the egg? And the young man said, no, I never heard of it. What's the story? And he said, well, your grandfather was at home one evening with teaching his students and knock on the door and there's a young girl who's about 10 years old who's carrying with her a, one little bowl. And in the bowl is a, an egg that's cracked open. And the girl said that she came from two neighborhoods away from where they were to ask the rabbi on behalf of her mother, is this egg kosher? 
they detected a certain spot on the egg and wanted to know whether or not the egg was kosher or not. So the rabbi said to the girl, yes, the egg is kosher. And off she went back in her pajamas, going to two, two different town, uh, neighborhoods away, back to her mother with his one little egg. Well, the story goes on to say that the student said to the rabbi, Rabbi, you said that that egg was kosher. You didn't even look at the egg. How do you know the egg was kosher? And the rabbi responded to the students and said, we learned from the Torah that when you decide things, you should decide leniently. If that girl's mother sent her two neighborhoods one evening by herself with a, with a dish with an egg in it to want to know if it's kosher or not, I didn't even have to look at the egg. I knew there was some kind of a hardship, hardship there, and, and, and I had to say, yes, the egg is kosher. It's a way of being flexible that we often don't often, or, or I should say, rarely do we see this in that kind of form in, in the Orthodox world. But uh, Rabbi Seinzels is trying, was trying in his work to promote this, uh, these ideas, to be flexible. Uh, there was another story, uh, that similar story, not about Rabbi Seinzels, <coughs> but about, <coughs> excuse me, about, uh, the, the, there was a plague in Lithuania and the certain rabbi who was the head of the Lithuanian community at the time, he said to everybody that Yom Kippur is coming up and I want you all to eat on Yom Kippur. In fact, this particular rabbi on the day of Yom Kippur, he went from shul to shul, from synagogue to synagogue, eating in front of the synagogue on Yom Kippur. Well, fortunately, this plague uh, disappeared um, from, from the community and people were getting back to health. And the rabbi had told them to eat because he felt that it was a healthy thing to do. So an, another man comes into town one day who had heard the story about the rabbi who explains to his people that they should, they should eat on Yom Kippur. And he said to the rabbi, so rabbi, I understand you're lenient when it comes to fasting. And the rabbi responded and said, no, 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 you misunderstand. I'm not lenient when it comes to fasting. I'm strict when it comes to health. Just a different way of looking at the very same situation. So I, I want to take a few questions or comments, but I, I would like to, uh, to, to just tell one more story that has to do with this book, The 13 Bell of Rose. I used to live in I used to live in Brooklyn, and the and the, the train that I went from Brooklyn to my office in Manhattan was the F train. And we moved from one apartment to the other. And I said to the family, I don't care where we move unless we, I just want to stay on the F train. Now, for those of you who don't know about the subway system in New York and the F train in particular, the F train is usually the most modern train. It has air conditioning in the cars. It's usually more on time than the other the other uh, subway lines, and because of those reasons, those reasons, and one other reason, I wanted to stay on the F train. And the other reason was that on every car, morning and evening, going to Manhattan and coming from Manhattan, on every car you could have a minion. You had you had Hasidim, Hasidim in, the, in the cars. They were um, studying Talmud. 
you had uh, women in the car, Orthodox women in the car, who in the subway car, who were reading from the Psalms. And you could have a minion. Uh, it, to me, it was like Jewish Disney World. Uh, everybody on, on the, on the uh, train was um, involved in something Jewish. Well, one evening, we're on the train is making its way back through the city, back to Brooklyn, where I lived. And I was sitting that evening next to a, a, a Hasidic Jew, a Hasid. He must have been about 80 years old. And he's sitting there, and he's reading the New York Post. And I'm sitting there, and I'm reading the 13 Petal Rose by Robert Steinzels. And I was feeling very good about myself. Because here it is, this Hasid who's reading the, 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 the junky newspaper of New York City. And there, there am I reading the New York Post, reading the 13 Petal Rose. Well, my first Talmud teacher taught me that the Talmud says that you shouldn't even go two cubits with a fellow Jew without talking Torah. A cubit is from the tip of your elbow to the tip of your longest finger. So that's the ancient yardstick. It's a cubit. So the Talmud says you shouldn't travel even two of those lengths without talking Torah with a fellow Jew. And I'm thinking, sitting there thinking that we're, we're, we're traveling far more than two cubits, but the etiquette in the train is that nobody speaks to anybody. Everybody just minds their own business. And yet there was this chassid sitting next to me, and I wanted to talk to him. I, I, I felt I, I had an opportunity there to, to have some words, words with, this, with this man. Finally, I got up the courage. And I said to the chassid sitting next to me, excuse me, but did you ever see this book? And I showed him the 13 petaled rose. He took the book from me and he flipped through the pages and he said to me, I don't usually look at books unless they have two haskamas. Now a haskama is a seal of approval. It's a, the, before the book is published, you give the manuscript to, a, to some rabbis, they read the book and then they say kosher book. And many, many books, even today, many, many books have these haskamas in the front of the book. So he said, I don't usually look at books unless they have at least two haskamas. What I wanted to say to him is, where is the haskama on the New York Post that you're reading? But I wanted to make friends. I didn't want to uh, be hostile to him. But he surprised me. He said to me, you know, it doesn't matter that much. What's the book about? And I, I, I turned to the table of contents. <clears throat> and I said to the, to the chassid, it's a book about Judaism. There's a chapter called the soul. There's a chapter called Torah. There's a chapter called holiness. There's a chapter called repentance. There's a chapter called mitzvot. It's a basic introduction to Jewish thought. He said, I never saw the book. I said to him, well, would it be okay if I asked you a question about something that's in this book? And he said, sure. So I turned to a, I turned to a page in the book and I read him the following passage. Rabbi Steinzels writes, it has been said that each of the letters of the Torah has some corresponding soul. That is to say, every soul is a letter in the entire Torah and has its own part to play. The soul that has fulfilled its task, the soul that has done what it has to do in terms of creating or repairing its own part of the world and realizing its own essence, that soul can wait after death for the perfection of the world as a whole. But not all souls are so privileged. Many souls stray for one reason or another. 
Sometimes a person does not do all the pr proper things. And sometimes he misuses forces and spoils his portion and the portion of others. In such cases, the soul does not complete its task and may even itself be damaged by contact with the world. It has not managed to complete that portion of reality, which only this particular soul can complete. And therefore, after the death of the body, the soul returns and is reincarnated in the body of another person. And again, must try and complete what it failed to correct or what it injured in the past. <clears throat> Pardon me, I said to this chassid sitting next to me, do we believe this? He said, of course. I said, Jews believe in reincarnation? I never heard it. He said to me, well, where did you get your Jewish education? And I said to him, well, I never really got a Jewish education. I grew up in my parents' home and they didn't really offer me much of a Jewish education at all. So he said to me, well, that's why you never heard of it. And as the train is winding its way back into Brooklyn, I began to answer his questions. He was asking me about myself. And I was telling him that I grew up without much of a Jewish background. I was telling him that it was, I was finding it very, very difficult to, uh, to catch up, to learn about some of these, uh, these Jewish notions uh, that, that were, were hard for me to fit into to who I was. I was telling him of my problems. I was telling him how difficult it is for somebody who is an adult to start with, with, with Olive Bait, with, with the ABC, that, that I, I found it very difficult to integrate into my life some of the ideas that I'm encountering in my Jewish studies. And the chassid at one point looks at me and says to me, you know, you're luckier than I am. And I said to the chassid, I'm luckier than you are? I just got finished telling you that I had no Jewish education, that I'm having all kinds of difficulties with, with my uh, Jewish education. How could I be luckier than you are? And the chassid said to me, well, every Jew is connected to God by a rope. The chassid said, sometimes the rope breaks, which in your case, meaning my case. But he said, you know, when a rope breaks and you find the two ends and you tie it back together, the rope is not only shorter than it was, but it's stronger than it might have been before it was broken. He said, you're luckier than I am. You're closer to God than I'll ever get. And this is a, a notion in our tradition that we, um, that the Baal Tshuva, the, 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 newly, the newly observant person, is higher in status than the high priest in the temple being involved in, in, in returning. So this little conversation that I had with this chassid on the subway that afternoon became the metaphor for my life. Because what am I trying to do in my, in my life? I'm trying to find the two ends of the rope and tie them back together and get a little bit closer. These are the remarks that I prepared to say today about Rabbi Steinzeltz. And I thank you very much for having me. And I'm wondering whether or not there are any uh, comments or questions that anybody who's participating has. Great. Thank you so much. This is fascinating stuff. Friends, we'll have about 12 or 13 minutes for questions. Just feel free to unmute yourself and jump in. Make my life as cool as you can. I just wanted to, um, my name is Tali Katz, and I just wanted to share an anecdote of my experience of the uh, meeting um, Rabbi Steinsels. Um, I took a young person who I was going to, a fr family friend buying, was planning on buying him a, a talit for his bar mitzvah. And I went, took him to the neighborhood in, in Baltimore. We were living in the Naples at a time and it's a very close family friend. And I wanted to show him a Jewish community. 
So I took him into the bookstore, a Jewish bookstore. I showed him all the Jewish books. And one of the things I went right to was Aideen Steisel's um, Talmud um, that she was referring to. And uh, we talked about it and we found another book and I showed him a book that I have at home, which is the 13 Petal Rose. And then I said, I wanna take you for a meal in a kosher restaurant. And we walked into a kosher restaurant and who was sitting at the table because his son formerly was from Baltimore was Rabbi Steinsels with his family. And it was just, um, it was like really shared hashkacha moment. But here I went through this whole journey with him going to these different places for him to experience a little Jewish world and um, and introduced him to Aideen Steisel. So he was so, I, I can see in his eyes that here, you know, he went to a bookstore, he sees this person who wrote volumes and then he had this moment just to greet him. So I uh, just wanted to share that. It was uh, really- Thank you for that. What a wonderful story. What a wonderful story that is. Thanks for sharing it. Anybody else have any comments or questions or objections or, or anything? Yes. Please, Roger. The teaching that God creates evil is, is obviously troubling. Could you elaborate on that? Sure. You know, in one of the Psalms, it says it right, right there that God creates evil, good and creates evil. That, that evil is created in order to make a borderline between good and evil. It's, it's, there, it's there like the police to, to, to indicate where you shouldn't go. What we do sometimes is we, you know, when, when the uh, snake in the garden is eating the dust, he's, he's, um, he's getting fatter and fatter from the, from the dust and the dusts are symbols of, of our sins. So the... Uh, the evil that's in the world is evil that we need to have in order to mark off the places where we shouldn't go. Unfortunately, too many of us, too, too often time, we cross that border and, we, and we, we sustain evil rather than avoid it. So God created evil and also created free will. And it's our, it's our job to, to learn and to learn and to learn and to be able to make choices that, that um, bring us closer to holiness and further away from evil. But the notion is that God created everything in the world, including evil. Is that at all satisfactory or not? Well, but doesn't sometimes evil touch us when, when we're completely innocent? Yeah, so when the evil is on its way and we're completely innocent, what we have to do is run in the other direction. We have to make sure that we don't get, get caught in evil. And evil is very clever. The snake was a very clever, very sophisticated creature with all kinds of arguments that, that one could fall into. But we have, to, we have to, to know evil, know how to recognize evil, and then get the heck away from it. It's when we try to get involved with the evil in one way or another that we get entangled. We have to, to, to move away from the evil or fight against the evil, but it's still there. And we, it's our choice as the, as the only creatures in the, in the world that have freedom of choice, that have free will. And then you, you gain merits from being able to have the discipline and to have the courage 
not to get entangled with the evil, but to make sure that you're, you're, you're not caught up with the evil and you fight against the evil. But in principle, everything that exists, exists because God created it. Everything. Not everything except evil. Not everything except sin. Everything. God created everything. In, princi in principle. I have a question, Arthur. Yes? I have a question. Miranda? Hi, Miranda. Please. Hi. Yes. <clears throat> uh, right now in the state of Texas where I live, the governor is trying to pass an evil act about voting. And the Democrats here, who are in small numbers compared to Republicans, are fighting the evil. They're not going back. And I'm applauding them. You're applauding the people who are fighting against the evil. Yes. Yeah, that's, this is this is our role to uh, to to be on the side of of of, of holiness and to uh, to fight against the the evil. That's that's always around the corner. But you said run in the other direction when you confront evil. No, you. No. Well, sometimes you have to run yeah. in the other direction. If there's, if there's a temptation, that's a personal temptation that's <clears throat> that's wrong. You right. have to run away from it. When it comes comes to politics, when there's a whole block of people who are who are um, expressing notions that we consider evil, then you have to fight for fight for it, but fight against it. But again, so many times it happens when you fight evil, you get entangled with it. One of the things that Robert Steins often would, would say is that um, if you if you do something you shouldn't be doing, don't don't spend too much time regretting it, because if you spend too much time regretting it, often what happens is you get back you get involved with it again, and uh, the very thing that you want to do, which is to get out of the evil, get away from the evil, you get more you get closer to the evil because you're 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 engaged with it, engaged with it. So the recommendation is to sometimes get away from evil. But in this lady's um, question, doesn't it give the uh, uh, the free choice get, um, potential of fighting? I mean, fighting against the evil. But the problem is not getting entangled with it, but still to face it and fight it. You have free choice either to run away to fight it but then if you fight it then you bring in that triangulation i think that you talked about in the marriage the reason for the marriage in all of life's decisions everything i do i try to bring god into it and 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 through my but i can, sometimes i can't get there in my intellect i have to go to my heart which is beyond my intellect and and that's where uh, I, I can't go further with that, <laughs> but I don't know. Thank you very much. For Thank the, you. Well put. It was well put. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you. Hi, Arthur. Steve Klimo. Yes, Steve. Hi there. Uh, great learning with you. Uh, I've uh, Since I met you, I've read the 13th Petal Rose many, many times over. I find it every time I start anew, it's, it's just mind-blowing, eye-opening. Uh, uh, such a revelation. 
So question is, uh, why did the rabbi use Shekhinah throughout the 13th Rose so extensively, whereas so many other rabbis just, you just don't see that? I, you know, <clears throat> pardon me, I don't know how to really answer the question. It was, uh, um, he, uh, the Shekhinah is real to him. You know, it's, a, it's one of the players on the chessboard of life. It's, it's, it's real to him. Uh, so he, uh, so he, he talks about the Shekhinah because it, it exists and we, we have to uh, establish our relationship with the Shekhinah rather than, than hide, it, hide away or ignore it or, or avoid it. Um, did you, do you think that he did it too much? I'm just really happy that he brought it out and, and used it throughout the entire book. It, again, it, it's so revolutionary and bringing out these Kabbalistic principles and these ideas. He, he also really, to me, introduced Shekhinah to, to uh, so many who, who, who just don't have any grasp or concept uh, of it. Well, you know, uh, I, I grew up with a Hashem. I grew up with a lot of different names, but the Shekhinah was never really you know, rolled out as, as, as a concept. Well, another good example in the Thirty Bit Rose is the the Ten Sfirot. Yes, I, I've, I've been I've been to more synagogues in this country than I think anybody I know, because uh, <laughs> I've been talking about all different subjects since since the uh, late late seventies, and I never once heard a, a, a sermon, never once where the rabbi spoke about the Ten Sfirot, and yet right. Steinzel's basic introduction to Judaism, it's a small book, it's 180 pages. In that book, he talks about the Ten Sirot in two different chapters. And then there was a new edition that was published, which added, where they added two new chapters to it. One was a chapter on prayer, and the second chapter was a chapter on the Ten Sirot. So now they have three chapters in that book on the Ten Sirot, and most Jews never heard of it. Uh, so, I, you know, I think that the rabbi is, you know, trying to, to make the balance a little bit more accurate. And I just add to that, that I just feel, it's telling it, I just feel, because um, I'm very engaged personally in teaching about the, um, the um, in Kabbalah and also the seven female prophets, which dealt a lot with what we just had. And here we went through counting, uh, counting the Omer. And very, and when I think about just the point you made, that if you walk in a traditional, uh, when I say traditional, conservative synagogue, they count today is, but they never talk about the inside. They don't go into inside. What is Pesini and what was that climb to Sinai? And I think talking about the Shekhinah really brings that um, feminine aspect of God is that when we think about our humanity and we think about the birth of the individual, it's really from the womb of the mother and it's the idea of Hashem birthing the world is really that we are part of that that presence. So that's that's a way to really connect to Hashem in a more, in a more personal way, which I think um, Aideen Scientist wants to have that relationship with God, which I think many of us have never been taught being raised in a synagogue to have a relationship with Hashem. Yeah, so as I, thank you for that. Thank you very much for that. Uh, as I was saying earlier in the hour, um, Rabbi Sanjal said to the rabbis in the New York Court of Rabbis, if you're not learning Kabbalah, if you're not teaching it, you're not doing your job. But, you know, when you ask the average teacher of Torah in, in some of these places about, about these Kabbalistic notions, 
the, the, the theology of the Jewish people, and they, they say they don't know anything about it. They never learned it. And it's, it's a tragedy. Uh, we, we lose so many people, uh, so many Jews, we, we lose them to other traditions that are talking about real stuff, real meaning, N not, not just a holiday that appears on the calendar and why am I going to eat on that holiday, but, but the, the soul of, of the, the tradition. And that's what, what you're learning and teaching. And that's what Rabbi Seinzel has, has been very busy with to, uh, to revive that, to, to make the smaller things bigger and the bigger things smaller in the right mm -hmm. proportion, in the right proportion. Very nice, very nice. Thank you all so much for joining us. Thank you, Rabbi Arthur Kurzweil, for this uh, fascinating presentation. Hopefully we can all continue to learn together and think more deeply and feel more passionately and continue to, uh, to grow together. Thank you for joining us. Please continue to join us. Many learning sessions uh, every week, uh, sometimes multiple a day. And thank you again, Rabbi Kurzweil, for this uh, special time to, to learn from you. Thank you so much.